panicked when all my notes hit the floor. But you carried on like a pro. Thank you. When the first piece of paper hit the floor, I kind of started to get up and say, I'll go help her. I saw two more hit the floor and thought, I'll make a mess of that. I'm not going. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The title of the message is Exhortation to Excellence. Do you want to go and attend an excellent church? Is your church excellent? Paul is encouraging the church at Thessalonians, the church of the Thessalonians, to be excellent. In fact, he's going to say twice in this passage, excel. And we're going to focus on two areas that he's asking them to excel in. But when you think about an excellent church, some people are just satisfied with religion. Hopefully that's not you because you've heard me preach against that regularly in the chapel over 20 years. But Paul's calling a church to excellence. Genuine faith, listen to me. Genuine faith will make a difference in the way you live your life. Religion will have little impact on you. In fact, it will entomb you in truth. You'll know what you're to do, but you're not doing it because you don't have the power to do it because all you've got is religion, man-made. But a relationship with Jesus Christ will affect the way you live your life. It will change things dramatically. So Paul spends the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians really encouraging inspiring, and he does this regularly in his letters. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. About halfway through, he changes to doctrine. So he's made a platform for doctrine. In fact, last week we looked at chapter 3 where Paul said, I so desperately want to come and see you. But I've been hindered from doing that, so we've sent Timothy ahead, and now he's gotten a report from Timothy. And one of the things Paul said is, he said, I want to see you complete in your faith. I want to make up what is lacking in your faith. So he gets real specific in the last couple of chapters, real practical. Here's some things that are lacking in your faith, two that we're going to look at today. But let me just read the first eight verses, and we'll get through chapter verse 12. But listen to Paul. Finally then, let me stop right there. Any of you grew up in a church where your pastor would say, he's pre- preached this long message, he finally says, finally, and he meant absolutely nothing? Because <laughs> when you hear finally, you're thinking, he's wrapping up. You're thinking, no, I think he just hit his second engine. He's taken back off. And Paul says finally, but he's got two more chapters. But he's rounding up and transitioning from the first three chapters. Something's changed. He's going to get into more doctrine and teaching. So he says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you also actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, For this is the will of God. You need to stop right there. When you see this is the will of God, antennas need to go up. You need to pay attention to what's next. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, and he's going to give an example of what he means by sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the first thing that Paul says is, I encourage you to excel in purity. And he uses two gentle words, really. He uses the word Exhort and the word request. 
Those don't sound mean. Those don't sound like smoke's coming out of his ears like I think is happening in Corinthians and Galatians. But Paul says, based on how much I love you, based on the report I've got from Timothy, there needs to be some mid-course correction. So I request, literally gently suggest, I ask, I exhort you, literally come alongside of. There's that word paraclete again. The Holy Spirit is that for us. He's come alongside of us to encourage us. Here's the picture I got when I was studying that. Anybody ever taught a little child how to ride a bicycle? Well, they have training wheels, but before you put training wheels on or maybe after you've taken them off, one of the things you do is you kind of run along beside the bicycle and hope they don't hurt themselves because mama's going to be mad at you if you do. So they're riding their bike. You're kind of running alongside of it. That's what Paul, that's the word encourage and exhort means. It means I've come alongside of you. It's almost as if a father who loves his child has called his children to his side and he's given them instruction. It's almost a crawl-in-your-lap kind of word. So Paul says we request and exhort just as you've received instruction. What Paul's saying is I'm not giving you new information. You already know this, but I want you to do better. I want you to excel even more. Even as you've received instructions on how you ought to walk, you're becoming more and more like Christ. Paul uses that word walk a lot. Here's how you ought to walk. And I noticed pretty much all of you walked in here. I didn't see all of you, but I'm assuming you all walked in here. If you're in a wheelchair, forgive me. You, you rolled in here. But we walk in here, and we, and we try to make that word hard. When Paul says walk, I'm thinking, what is, there's a dip, depth to that word. Do I put left foot first and right foot next, or is it right foot first, left foot next? No. I think Paul's using a word we're already doing. We're already walking. And so he said, as you walk, as you live and conduct your life, you ought to walk in a way that pleases God. And he backs up and puts a little parentheses, just as you're already doing. Paul's saying, listen, God is pleased with you. I'm just calling you to excel still more, literally to be in excess, to superabound, to overflow. Paul wanted the church of the Thessalonians to be spiritually extraordinary. Paul wanted there to be a day when they would see God and God would say to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the kind of life I want to live and I hope that you want to live extraordinary not an ordinary christian life certainly not a life where all you are is religious you're living a life of excellence and so paul says okay you're already doing these things but i'm asking that you excel even more listen how paul put it in philippians chapter 3 verse 12 and through 14 same author different audience philippians but we're reading both of them paul said not that i've already obtained it or have already become perfect but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, he writes to the Philippian believers, and he basically says, I'm not satisfied with where I am, there's a goal out there. I'm in the race. I'm running. I'm not being distracted or I'm trying not to be distracted by things to my left or my right. I'm focusing my eyes on Christ. I excel even more. Then he says, you know the commandments we're giving you. Now, this is not urge and request. This is, these are commandments. These are authoritative, authoritative words from Jesus himself. By the authority of Christ, this is the will of God. I stopped as we read the passage just to focus on that. But the letter that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica is this. This is God's will, that you be sanctified. 
Listen, that began the day you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Sanctification is a continual process of chipping away from your life anything that doesn't look like Jesus. You're in the process of being sanctified. And there's a lot of areas in which we, he's working on us in, but the one Paul settles in is that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornea, pornography. And so to make that practical in our environment, the pornographic industry is a $50 billion a year industry in the United States. Did you know that? So I realize that I'm speaking to somebody that may be struggling in that area. And Paul says, "Be sexually, do not be sexually immoral. Be sexually pure. I'm calling you to excel in purity. If you're struggling in that area, I hope you get some practical advice from Paul that you would make a change in your life because it is a struggle that I know impacts the church. It's not just those outside the church. It's the people inside the church. Why did Paul write this? Why did Paul focus on that? Well, because Timothy had been to visit the church. And he came back and reported to Paul, listen, they're doing good. They, they love us. They're, they're sorry that we can't be with them. They haven't given up on us. They're continuing in the faith. But one problem, they're in a very perverse society. This is Greece. This is a place where you had all these statues to other gods. You had all these temples to Diana and other Greek gods. And one of the things they did, I won't go into all the details, one of the things they did, they had temple prostitutes. So as Paul writes this letter to the church of the Thessalonians, he's writing to people who've just come to faith in Christ. Some of them may have been saved out of that environment. Maybe they had been a temple prostitute, or maybe they had participated with a temple prostitute. So Paul's saying, your sanctification is that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is he talking about? Anything that deviates from God's plan for marriage. One man, one woman, monogamous relationship. Anything that deviates from that is sexually immoral. Pornea. So then he gets practical. Three things that I'm going to point out that he says, because likely this is going on in the church, I don't think Paul would have written to the church at Thessalonica if this wasn't something they were struggling in. And so he says, first of all, don't let your body control you. You each know how to control your own vessel, your own body. You have the know-how. You have regarded this with favor to get or acquire controlling your own body. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, excuse me, at Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. As far as I've been able to find, this is the only thing we're to flee from. In fact, James 4.7 says, submit therefore to God Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Every other sin, we stand up and say, no, Satan flees from us. But when the tempter comes and tempts you with sexual immorality, get out of there. Run from it. Flee from immorality. So Paul said, take it that seriously that you would flee from immorality. You've learned to possess your own body in sanctification. So how do we do that? If you're struggling in the area of pornography, number one, admit you're struggling. I'm not telling you to get up at church and confess to 500 people at one time, but admit to yourself and admit to God, these are some areas, these are some things I can't go do anymore. These are some things I don't need to be watching on television or at the movies. These are magazines I don't need to be looking at. These are places I don't need to go because if I go there, it's going to cause me to struggle. So admit your area of struggle and then avoid those places or things. Don't go to those places. Don't find yourself involved in those things. And seek accountability. Again, I'm not saying you've got to confess this to 500 people at church, but find somebody 
that you know loves the Lord and would keep a confidence and go to them and say, hey, would you pray for me in this area? Maybe it's mutual accountability. You're both struggling with the same thing. But maybe it's somebody that's not struggling with the same area you are, but you're saying, pray for me because I don't want to keep falling into this sin, this temptation. Stories told of a little kid whose mom had said, do not go swimming in that pond on the way home from school anymore because there's snakes in there and people have been bitten and killed and you could drown because you're by yourself. So the next day he's riding his bike to school and leaves school and his friend said, why you got your bathing suit? He said, well, you know, I'm going to be passing that lake. He said, didn't your mom tell you not to go swimming in that lake? Yeah, I have no intention to go swimming in that lake, but just in case I've got my bathing suit. If you're living your life with the just-in-case mentality, you're going to yield a temptation. Admit you've got an issue, avoid the temptation, and seek accountability. Have people praying for you. So in sanctification and honor, you're not asking the question, how close can I get to the edge? I've had students when I was in youth ministry say, how far is too far? I'd always just pick a town nearby. That's too far. Don't go further than that. But I knew what they meant. They meant, how close can I get to the edge of sin without falling in? Well, if you're going to maintain yourself in sanctification and honor, the, uh, the question is not how close can I get to the edge of sin. It's how far can I get away from it? How close can I get to Jesus? Because that's what sanctification is. God's chipping away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. So let him do that in your life in honor. Secondly, don't act like unbelievers. He said, don't act like the ones who don't know me, who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't act like them, not in lustful passion, not longing for what is forbidden. Thessalonica was a town where it was rampant. 200,000 people at that time lived in Thessalonica. It was a major Roman road. It was a seaport town. Visitors came through there all the time, and sexual immorality was rampant. So don't act like them. Don't let the world be the standard for your behavior just like the Gentiles who don't know God. Why are we surprised when non-Christians act like non-Christians? I was a youth pastor at a church in North Carolina, and I had a phone call. We did a thing on Wednesday night called Joy Explosion. Then we changed the name to The Rock. I don't know why, we just did. But I got a phone call from a parent who said, I don't know if you're aware of this, but some of the kids after church on Wednesday night have snuck around the side of the building and they're smoking cigarettes. And I thought, well, I wonder where they got that idea from. If you ever watched nursery drop-off, you could drive under this overhang. And we had deacons out there, cigarette in one hand, opening the door. I thought, they're probably not going to do something different than what they're seeing the adults who they look up to and think these are leaders in the church. So don't act like unbelievers. And don't sin against others. He says, don't let any man transgress or defraud his brother. Literally, to go beyond the bounds of the means. How do we do that? Sexual sin is not only against God, but it's against the dignity of other people. The person you're involved with sexual sin in, you're, you're not respecting them, but you're also not respecting their future husband or wife. And think about that. Someone that you're involved with immorally is potentially someone's husband or wife if they're not already some hu- someone's husband or wife. John Phillips, a noted commentary writer, says, God has written no trespassing over every man and woman who is not one's own wife or husband. He has posted the warning, trespassers will be prosecuted. That's the attitude we ought to have because he goes on to say the Lord is the avenger. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
the God's the avenger. I think sometimes we have the attitude that we're getting away with something. Nobody knows this. As long as we can keep this a secret and nobody ever finds out about it, well, guess what? God knows about it, and God's promised to avenge. I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to be real careful not to add the names, but it illustrates this point perfectly. I got a phone call one Saturday afternoon from a lady in our church who said, I need to tell my husband that I've been having an affair, and I want you to be here. I need, I need moral support. Well, I said, do you mind if I bring somebody with me? She said, no, I don't mind. So I was going to bring her Sunday school teacher with me. But I'm going to be real honest with you. The reason I brought somebody with me, her husband was a competitive weightlifter. And I thought, I don't want to be sitting there and her unpack the idea I'm having an affair and him look at me and jump to conclusions and snap my neck. Well, before I got there, she had already told him, and we worked through it, and their marriage was restored. The guy she was having the affair with was also a member of our church. And here's what he said to me. He said, I knew what I was doing was wrong. In fact, God had tried to get my attention on multiple occasions. In fact, he said a week or so ago, I had a wreck. And I know beyond any shadow of a doubt, God spared my life in an accident I should have died in. He spared my life, but I still wouldn't stop. Listen, the Lord is the avenger. He's the righteous judge. And he's saying through Paul to the church of the Thessalonians, avoid sexual immorality, abstain from it. The word abstain means to quit, cut it off, stop it. But if you don't, you're not getting away with something forever. The word says sin's fun for a season, but the season's going to end and God's going to avenge because he's not called us for the purpose of impurity, but he's called us in sanctification. And then he's real, real pointed. He said, listen, if you're going to reject this, you're not rejecting men. In other words, he's saying to the people to read in the letter, listen, if this doesn't sound good to you, you're not willing to abide by this, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God who's given you the Holy Spirit, the one who's empowered you to live holy. So closing out this thought on sexual immorality and to, we're to abstain from it, excellence or excelling in purity, just a few thoughts. Every temptation starts in the mind. One of the things God has done when you come to faith in Christ is he's begun renewing your mind. But you need to be aware of when the mental, when the thought crosses your mind, you need to take that thought captive. You need to dismiss that thought and say, you know what? I'm going to please God. I'm not going to submit to a temptation from the enemy. Second thought, determine your convictions in advance. When I speak to young people about sexual purity, I say the time to decide how far you're going to go is not when you're already there. You need to decide, these are my convictions. These are things I will not do. And so I won't put myself in a position to even be forced to do those kind of things. So I've decided in advance. So when the heat of the moment comes, you already know this is something that's crossing the line. And surrender to the Lord. Listen, it's impossible to do this without the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about. Without God in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to live this kind of life because it's what comes naturally. Then excel in love. Let me read the last few verses. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you don't have any need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But I urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. 
Now to the love of the brethren. I'm going to teach you one Greek word. It's the word Philadelphia. Ever heard that? What does Philadelphia mean? City of brotherly love. That's the word that he uses here. As for the love of the brethren, that's one word, love of the brethren, is Philadelphia. And outside of the, of the New Testament, it's almost used exclusively when it's talking about children of the same father. So Paul uses a word that means children of the same father to say, listen, as a child of God, we've all got the same father. God is our heavenly father. And so as, as someone who loves the brethren, there's really no need for me to write to you. You've already been taught by God. But he does write to him. so why does he do that? Because he wants them to excel more. Paul's basically saying you've started well. You're demonstrating love of the brethren. You're demonstrating especially in the area of Macedonia. But I want you to excel still more. So how would they do that? We urge you to excel still more. They do that by not just focusing on the brethren. Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said, All men will know you're my followers by your love for one another. So that's a great place to start. Christians need to love Christians. Have you ever been to a church where it appeared they didn't love each other? Don't raise your hand. Don't point at the church you're in now. But I've been in some very unfriendly, unloving churches. I've been in some places that look good from 10,000 feet. You drive by, the building looks great. Plenty of ample parking. They've got parking attendants. But you get inside the church, and the music's good. Maybe the preaching's good. Maybe they got every program you've ever wanted, and yet just something about it you sense these people don't love other people. Maybe they love each other real well. You ever been to that kind of church where it seemed like everybody talked to each other, but they never talked to me? Maybe they looked at you and thought, I don't know him, so I'm not going over there. I'm not going to talk to her. Paul's saying, listen, the way you're going to excel more is not just to focus on the brethren or the area of Greece that you're in called Macedonia. But I want you to excel more. I want you to do better than what you're doing by focusing outside of just those within your level of influence. One way to tell a friendly church is how long does it take people to leave? If, if the church ends, boom, and everybody's out the door, not a real loving, friendly church. Now, I'm not telling you that so that y'all make sure you're the last one to leave today. But I'm just saying, pay attention to the churches you visit or the church that you're a part of. The people enjoy being together. It's evidence of a church that loves each other. So Paul's calling them to excel. And then the practical application, verses 11 and 12. Listen, you can do church without God there. You can do church without love, but you won't be the church unless love is present. So make it your ambition. Literally be eager to do this. Be zealous. Strive eagerly. Three things. First, lead a quiet life. Now, now Paul's not encouraging the churches of Thessalonians to just shut up and never speak because he writes in Romans, how will they know, how will they respond to the gospel unless they hear from a preacher? Somebody, whether it's a professional preacher or somebody that just takes the word of God to their classmates or to their place of business or to their neighbor. There's got to be words used. But Paul's saying lead a quiet life. It literally means don't be meddlesome, and he gets more specific in the next point. Attend to your own business. I know nobody in here would ever do this, but I hear about this in churches far, far away. Some people kind of act like they're self-appointed Holy Spirit, and they'll get all up in your business. And I think it's fine if it's somebody you know well enough that loves you, that asks you the right kind of question, but you know the difference between somebody that's loving you and somebody that's sliming you. You know how to tell the difference? 
The difference is in their motivation. Are they trying to help you or are they trying to hurt you? So Paul says, tend to your own business. Listen, if you do this, you won't have time to meddle. What did Jesus say? Hey, why are you trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a huge log protruding from your eye? Take care of the log in your eye, and then maybe you can focus on the speck that's in your brother's eye. So Paul says, listen, the way we love each other is going to make a difference in our spiritual growth. It's part of our sanctification, and it will tell the world this is the real deal. It will attract people to Jesus. So lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and then work with your hands. Why did Paul need to tell that? Again, everything that he's teaching them is because Timothy's coming back and reporting to Paul. Here's one of the things that's happened. In every, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, there's five chapters. Every chapter, Paul mentions the return of Christ. The t- church at Thessalonica was looking forward to the return of Christ, and some people had thought, well, you know what? If Jesus is coming back, why am I working? Anybody ever ask you that? If you knew Jesus would come back tomorrow, what would you do today? Some people would go buy a Ferrari. If you know Jesus is coming back next week, we're going to Hawaii, and we're putting it on a credit card because we'll never have to worry about that again. So that was happening. Among the Greeks, manual labor was not esteemed. For most in the Greek culture, they looked at manual labor and said, that's slave labor. And they had slaves back then. The slaves would take care of that. They didn't esteem it. Well, here's the issue. A lot of the people in Thessalonica that had come to faith in Christ were slaves, were part of the working class. It didn't have somebody else to do their work for them, but they were laying down on the job because they thought, well, Jesus is coming back. What's the point of me doing that if it's going to happen? And so what happened is some had quit working, and they were becoming dependent on others. They were taking up offerings to support them because they weren't supporting themselves anymore. They weren't working with their hands. So Paul says, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. That's where love's going to be most important, most evident. How do you treat those who are outside the church? How do you treat those that are outside your circle of influence? How did Jesus do it? It amazes me in the upper room, John 13 and following, chapters 13 and following. Jesus spends many chapters, I think through chapter 17 of, of the Gospel of John, teaching his disciples on the night he was going to be betrayed. And one of the things he did was wash their feet. You remember that? The thing that amazes me is one of the men whose feet he washed, Judas. What was Judas about to do? He was about to betray Christ. Did Jesus know that? Yeah. When Jesus stooped to wash Judas' feet, he knew what was already in this guy's mind and heart, that not long after this, he's going to receive 30 pieces of silver to sell him out. One of my favorite stories, there's a pastor in California, Pastor Smith, Chuck Smith. Somebody came to him one day and said, we got these surfers that are coming to church. And he said, yeah, what's the problem with that? He said, well, they, they come in barefooted, and their feet are dirty. And so we're going to keep them from coming in here. And he said, no, I'll take care of that. Next thing they knew, Pastor Chuck was out there with a wash basin washing their feet. Paul said, Excel even more, and one of the ways you're going to excel even more is not just loving the people in your circle, but love the people that God crosses your path with who need to know Jesus. God doesn't want the church isolated from the world. He also doesn't want the church dependent on the world. He doesn't want the church looking at the world, setting our our godly standards, and he doesn't want us to quit working and quit supporting ourselves so that we become dependent on others. So, excel in purity, excel in love.
Let's pray together. As you bow your